You know, for the, uh, for, for the past couple of years, there's been an increasing focus on the study of last things and of the potentially rapid approach of the last days, particularly in light of the COVID pandemic and the, uh, the chaos and the unrest that its wake has, has kind of revealed on the world stage, whether it's uh, in the form of how uh, easily our leaders caved into the dark underbelly of totalitarianism or the uh, fragility of our supply chains and financial markets, uh, all the way down really to how uh, Orwellianly eager that even otherwise intelligent people were to believe almost anything the media broadcast over the airwaves. And I don't know about you, but I'm kind of ready for a break from all of that. Anybody with me? And so, so today, I don't want to talk to you about last things, but I want to talk to you about first things. And even more importantly, about the one who is at the beginning of all things, who because of his atoning work became what the Bible calls the firstborn among many brethren and the first fruits of the resurrection. And that first fruits word is important, so keep that in your mind. And we're going to see that actually in two texts that I want to pull together today as we continue our journey through the great 50 days of Eastertide and our extended look at the majesty and the divine mystery of the resurrection. And so our first text is from Leviticus chapter 23, and the second will be our primary reading in Matthew 27. Uh, but first, just for a little uh, context, a little background in Leviticus 23, it's from this chapter in which God lays down the laws on how to celebrate all of his feasts. And he says this, he says to his people, when you enter the land that I'm going to give you, and you reap its harvest, bring to the priest a sheaf for the first grain that you harvest. And he is to wave the sheaf before the Lord, so it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. And from that day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, count off seven full weeks. Count off 50 days. Up to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. And then our primary reading from the gospel, which is Matthew 27, beginning in verse 50. Matthew tells us, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, our Father, may the, uh, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight this morning. Enlighten us, Lord, by your holy gospel through the grace of Jesus Christ, uh, because we want to see him in the words that are go forth this morning. We ask it in his name. Amen. So, you know, we all know that firsts are special, right? Like our, our first car, which, you know, if Dick Jordan ever gets tired of that Mustang that he brought to church today, you know, uh, that was a pretty cool car. Uh, but, you know, our first car, our first date, our first home, and firsts are significant to God, too, because in Exodus 4.22, he calls Israel his firstborn son. And as his firstborn, the Israelites were commanded to honor God by bringing the best of the first fruits of their soil to the house of the Lord. And God commanded his people to offer uh, the first fruits of their harvest. And in doing that, he was asking the nation and the people to make a show of faith and to publicly and tangibly acknowledge in front of the whole congregation that if God had given them 
of a, a first fruit, an initial first fruit that was good, they could expect an even more bountiful harvest in the coming months. Uh, ahead of even uh, all of those Torah laws, you know, that are given, I know a lot of them, of course, are no longer obligations for us as Christians, for us to continue following. They don't always seem particularly relevant to everyday life. But what I want you to see this morning is we can't just arbitrarily exclude them from our thinking because they're a part of God's Word, and God's Word is clear uh, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, right? And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And so that includes, like, all the stuff that I know you guys skip over when you're reading the Old Testament, right? All the begats, like this person begat that person, right? And the seemingly endless lists, and the stories of the property divisions and the, the minutia of the laws and the ritual observances. But, but we can't ignore them because within them, as one commentator writes, are all the principles and patterns and examples of God's design for life and which serve as his teaching vehicle pointing us to Christ. And the Apostle Paul was even more pointed. He put it like this. He said in Galatians 3.24, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ which ties us right back into our season of Eastertide uh, and our examination of the resurrection. And you kind of got a preview of this last week. If you guys, uh, if, you know, if you read your bulletins every week in the, in the middle section, this is just kind of as an aside, uh, but I encourage you to do that because a lot of thought and preparation uh, goes into the content that gets, that gets printed there every week, either as a, an aid to the sermon or an explanation of the liturgy, or, or a prompt about the lectionary passages. But so if you read last week's, you know that our celebration of Christ's death and resurrection and his ultimate ascension all happened between three Jewish holidays, right? It happened between Passover, the Feast of Firstfruits, and the Feast of Pentecost. So Passover, of course, is when the spotless lamb was slain for the forgiveness of the people's sins, coinciding with our Lord's crucifixion. Then the celebration of first fruits that comes three days later at sunup, when the high priest in the temple would wave sheaves of grain like, like living stalks of grain blowing in the wind, mirroring the breath of life, returning at daybreak to our resurrected Savior. And then 50 days later, Penta in Greek, uh, or the equivalent of seven weeks called Shavuot, if you're counting in Hebrew, comes Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was given. And at this point, you might be thinking, okay, well, pastor, that's really interesting and all uh, and I know Jesus' death and resurrection is important, but uh, what does all the rest of that have to do with me? Um, what, what, what's the message there for me? Why, why should I care about sheep and grain and festivals and counting days? And the first thing I want you to see is how important all those things were to Jesus because they run all through his sermons, and if they were important to him, they have to be important to us, right? So listen, I'm just going to give you a couple examples. Listen to what Jesus says in John uh, chapter 4. He said to his followers, do you not say there is yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. And, and he's speaking here of a spiritual harvest of uh, the people to eternal life. And that was Jesus' work. It's the same work that he was training the disciples and by extension, you and me to do and to carry on after his death and resurrection. Matthew writes something really similar in Matthew chapter 9. It says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. 
And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And another clear reference comes in our Lord's parable of the wheat and the weeds in Matthew 13, which says Jesus told them another parable. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the weeds sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, uh, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. And the servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? And no, he answered, Because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. And then a little later when Jesus' disciples didn't quite get the point and they asked for an explanation of this parable, the Bible continues in that same chapter. He answered them and said, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. And so finally, here in this last example, ju just in case you didn't catch all of Jesus' hints in the other one, he just spells it out. Right? The harvest in these stories symbolizes a believer's redemption. And more specifically, it symbolizes the promise of a resurrection to eternal life, a living inheritance in the kingdom of God. And all of that possible only through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, whose resurrection, it turns out, was only the beginning. It was only the first fruits that we could say of what God had in mind. And I want you to listen to how the Apostle Paul kind of pulls these ideas together. This is really incredible to me how he says this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 20. And listen to what Paul says. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the what? first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. And you see, we know now from our Old Testament passage what that means. It means if the first fruits was good, it carries with it the promise of even more and better to come. And so Paul continues, he says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the what? first fruits, and then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. And brothers and sisters, that's us. Amen, somebody. And that's those that we love who have passed on into the arms of Christ. And this is, this is really how we know that there's something more in store for us than just the inevitability of our bodies decaying in a burial ground. There's something more for us than just the reduction to ashes in a mantletop urn. This means, as the song goes, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. And praise God, because he graciously demonstrated that to us in a pretty dramatic way as we read in our primary text in Matthew 27. Remember we read, And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and rocks were split and tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Because, you know, on the, on the one hand, of course, the physical 
bodily resurrection of our Lord Jesus is the most profound and dramatic miracle ever to take place, right? It, it, was, the, it was the veracity of his preaching. It was the vindication of all of the claims that he made about himself. It was a very public declaration that he was indeed the perfectly righteous son of God and therefore a suitable offering to turn away God's wrath and provides a firm basis on which we can be declared justified before the Father. But you know the one thing it doesn't do is it doesn't really nail down exactly what that means for us in terms of our physical bodily future, does it? It doesn't really demonstrate what uh, heaven or our eternal future has in store for us as individuals because it doesn't exactly flesh out what's to become of this flesh of ours that we've become so accustomed to living in. Because yes, Christ's resurrection was great news for him. And it is good news for our redemption, but it still leaves the question of then what? What, what comes after we die? And I think the reality uh, and the witness and the testimony of those everyday men and women who accompanied our Lord Jesus back from the grave helped to really connect uh, what that great future promise is going to be like. Because even though some scholars still debate as to the exact nature of those folks when they rose with Jesus, one thing is for sure, that they unmistakably connect his glorious resurrection to the very ordinary lives of people just like you and me. Right? P people who, who want the answer to the great big question is of where do we go from here after we die? And the Apostle Paul describes that feeling like this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, for we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is when we die and leave this earthly body, we'll have a house in heaven, an eternal body, made for us by God himself and not by human hands. As we grow weary in our present bodies and we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. For we will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. And while we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh. And it's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. And God himself has prepared us for this. And as a guarantee, he's given us the Holy Spirit. And for those of you that came to Linda's funeral this Monday past, I shared that text about the fact that the Bible says that our, our bodies are like tents, right? Remember I said they sag, right? They, they wrinkle, right? The joints get creaky. The connections wear out, right? Right. Uh, because of our connection to Adam's fall, that happens, and, and because of the curse of sin, the cells of our body now are actually pre-programmed to die from the moment we're born. And one day after a life of groaning and sighing and weariness and weakness in this fast-paced world, we will leave this temporary tent and settle into the permanent home of our resurrection body. And that's really a fitting metaphor for it, because if you've ever gone camping, there's a big difference between staying in a temporary shelter and living in a building. Uh, th these tents of ours are temporary, right? They're flimsy. They're easily knocked over, and they're meant to be replaced, but a building is strong. Uh, a building is built on a foundation, and it's not meant to be moved. And it speaks of permanence, and it speaks of a settled peace. And that idea tells us some important things about death, namely that death is not reincarnation. It's not an infinite do-over. It's not the best two out of three. Uh, death is not evaporation. 
and it's not annihilation, but rather for those in Christ, it is a glorified continuation on a whole nother level. Because one day we will trade in these broken down old bodies for a perfected new one. And what did Paul say about that body that we're hoping for? Well, he said it's one from God. He said it's not made with human hands. He said it's eternal. And, and church, that's not wishful thinking. It's a sure and certain promise. That's what Paul means when he started out that text by saying we know. Because you know, there's a whole lot of things we don't know about the future. But this much is certain that we will not have to live in these corrupted bodies forever. And we will not just be disembodied spirits. R.C. Sproul put it like this. This is a little bit of a long quote, but I, I really want to share this with you guys. So listen to this. This is from R.C. Sproul. He said, Jesus was raised from the dead for our justification, yes, but he was also raised for our resurrection. In other words, he says, because Christ was raised from the dead, we will be raised as well. And one day our physical bodies will be resurrected and we will be glorified just as Jesus was. We've been united to Christ having died to sin and that union means that we are also united to him in the resurrection. Our bodies will not remain in the grave forever. At the last day, our spirit will be reunited with them to live forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And he concludes by saying, yes, we do look forward to being in the presence of God at our death, but our final hope is the resurrection in which our spirits will be reunited with perfected bodies, and then we will forever experience the glorified state that the Lord intended for us from the very beginning. And so... For any of us who have ever lost someone that we love, it means that whenever we go to that cemetery, whenever we go to that mausoleum, whenever we stand by that columbarium, that that hallowed place is not a burial ground, but it is a resurrection ground. Because one day that one that we love will be resurrected from the grave just as Christ was resurrected from the dead. And so will all of us who are found in him. But brothers and sisters, that offer of redemption is conditional. It's conditional on a recognition of sin, not just in the world, but in us personally. And then in the gift of repentance from it that's available only in the person and work of Jesus Christ and a committed relationship of love and obedience to him. And folks, that offer is open to you this morning. It's open right here and right now before you leave. And you can claim a relationship with a God that knows your heart and that feels your pain. And better yet, a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ, who didn't just sit idly by and watch the world go to hell, but did something about it, even though it cost him his life. And why is that? Because, folks, the Bible is crystal clear that sin is real and its punishment is certain. We talked about this in Sunday school. That's the frightening flip side of the resurrection promise. The Bible says in Daniel chapter 12, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. But folks, the Bible is clear that sin is real and its punishment is certain. Punishment for what the Bible calls the lawless and the rebellious, for the unholy and the profane, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for homosexuals and liars and perjurers, and for anyone else who is averse to sound teaching that agrees with the glorious gospel of the blessed God. But church, the great good news of Eastertide is that if you claim by faith that Jesus' death on the cross was for you and in your place, you can be forgiven of any and all of those sins and look forward with hope too. 
hope to a permanent home and a resurrected body. And here's, here's the application that I want you to leave with today, and it's this. Brothers and sisters, what you believe about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is critical to your faith. And knowing that God will resurrect everyone to either reward or punishment is a life-changing truth. Realizing that every person that you encounter is an eternal being who will either spend eternity with God or an eternity apart from him based on his or her response to the gospel. Because church, death is not the end. Jesus has won the victory. He's become the first fruits of all that God has in store for us if we humbly surrender ourselves to him. And brothers and sisters, this table is the perfect place for that to start. Will you pray with me? Father God, it's truly right and our greatest joy always and everywhere to give you thanks and praise, especially in this Holy Supper, recalling that perfect sacrifice once offered on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ and asking you by the joy of his resurrection, we celebrate this Eastertide and in expectation of his coming again, that you unite us in your truth and love so we can confess your name and sit together at one table. And so come now, Lord, and continue your transforming work in this place and in this time that eyes may be opened, that hearts may be radically changed by the good news of the gospel. And so remembering now your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we take from your creation this bread and this wine, and we ask you to pour out your spirit upon us and upon these your gifts, that this meal may be for us a communion with our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. And as we sing our communion,